welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, senior fellow here at Cato. So before we get started today, we'd like to ask you all to do us a favor. Power Problems has been running for a year now, and we'd like to get a feel for what you, the audience, likes about the podcast, what you don't like about the podcast, and what you'd like to see more of. So we have a survey for you that we would be thrilled if you would fill out. You can find it on the Cato website at www.cato.org forward slash podcast survey. You can fill that out and let us know what you think about the podcast. If you have a couple of minutes, you could also leave us a good review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. So today, we're starting the first of a two-part series uh, on the future of American foreign policy. We'll start today with conservative foreign policy and move on in our next episode to the future of progressive or democratic foreign policy. Conservative foreign policy is at a real inflection point. Since he launched his campaign back in 2015, experts have spent a lot of time arguing about what the Trump administration's foreign policy would be, what Trump's own foreign policy views were, and what it would mean in practice. You know, is there such a thing as the Trump doctrine? We've discussed this a lot on the show. But what gets far less discussion is the deeper story of how conservative and liberal views of grand strategy are evolving during the Trump era. Trump's approach has been at odds to various degrees with the foreign policy establishment and with foreign policy gurus from both sides of the aisle. How have the left and the right responded to his actions and to his influence? And perhaps more importantly, when Trump leaves the Oval Office, what sort of foreign policy will he be leaving behind? So joining us today to to kick us off and discuss the past, present and future of conservative foreign policy is Brian McGrath. Brian is the Deputy Director of the Center for American Sea Power at the Hudson Institute and also one of the stars, along with our own Chris Preble, of a new podcast from War on the Rocks called Net Assessment. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for calling me a star. Let's start with the news um, and let's start with some news uh, from the far, far right. Uh, In the past week, we've seen uh, pipe bombs and shootings in the US, uh, the election of a far right leader in Brazil. And then Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel uh, telling Germany she's stepping down as the chairwoman of her party and that she won't seek another term as the far right continues to rise in in Germany. Uh, What do we make of all these things? Are these just random events or are they connected in some strange way? I think we're living in a pretty troubled time. And uh, whether the populism is populism of the right or populism of the left, um, populism uh, is something that I am... uh, wary of, mostly because it tends to create an identity and that identity is we're good and they're bad. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't I don't like identity when it's attached to gender or race or any other of the th- ways we do it in the United States. And I certainly don't like it um, uh, the way it's playing out in world politics. So I'm a little I'm a little wary of things right now just in general. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think, you know, when you dig deeper, um, you realize that some of the driving forces behind populism wherever it appears are the same. So so maybe rising economic insecurity in a lot of places, the various and sundry black box mechanisms of globalization which have people concerned. I mean, there there are lots of things going on that we could be concerned about here. What's interesting though, to me is there's an analog 
or, or similar process going on among the elites, right? You get this populism that cuts, cross cuts through the left and the right. And then at the top of, at the, at the elites and the left, uh, of the left and the right, there is a convergence. And so you have this odd shaped uh, model in which at, at the bottom and the top, people tend to think alike. Um, and I, you know, that's, uh, it's playing itself out before our eyes. Perhaps this suggests that we shouldn't be using for our political spectrum model that was basically based on where some guys sat in a in a hall during the French Revolution. Perhaps it's not a spectrum. Perhaps it's a circle. Or perhaps it's a broader range. But uh, our, our model might be just a little too simplistic. Uh, okay, so the Pentagon is deploying um, north now. I think I can't remember the latest number: five, ten, fourteen thousand uh, troops to the U.S.-Mexico border to bolster. Uh, a couple thousand National Guard troops already there to stop this um, migrant caravan uh, as it reaches the border. Trump's taken a predictably hard line, um, tweeting that, you know, this is an invasion of our country and our military is waiting for you. Um, when, just, when did immigration become a national security issue? Since um, President Trump made it into one. Um, listen, I, I think who comes into your country and who stays in your country is the table stakes of sovereignty. Uh, I believe we ought to have a very, uh, very laid out and coherent policy of legal immigration and what we do with people who come here against our laws. But this sideshow, this circus uh, that the president is orchestrating by sending the military to the border is just naked political opportunism. And it's all about um, turning out his base in a week. Uh, and it, and it's and it's execrable. I mean, I just I, I watch it and I and I'm glad I'm no longer in the military. I mean, the Trump administration has more broadly made immigration a national security issue. Like if you go back and you look at the national security strategy, it's just stunning how much of it was framed in terms partly of trade, but also of, of immigration. Some of it in the context that you're seeing of state sovereignty, but some of it in this sort of language of immigrants as a, as a threat and as, a, you know, as an immigrant myself and a veteran of the US immigration system and how awful it can be. I'll freely admit the system is broken, but the way that it's being framed here with immigrants as a threat is, I mean, to me, as someone that came to this country as an outsider, it just seems fundamentally at odds with American values as I understood them. Yeah, it just it, it, the, the optics to me, uh, you know, of the world that uh, of, of country that built itself through immigration um, and has always espoused kind of this, you know, um, welcoming and benign sort of vision of itself uh, to outsiders. It, it's it's hard for me to watch that. Um, do a 180. That that's very hard for me. And and uh, you know, reasonable people can disagree about what the rules for immigration should be, but I don't feel like we've had a reasonable conversation about immigration in a very long time, even well before the Trump administration. There's well, been a little. I mean, look what happened to Marco Rubio. Um, he got savaged uh, as a result of trying to move with a group of Republicans to a coherent immigration strategy for both legal and uh, and unlawful immigration. So. I mean, is this crushed. just the, the logical conclusion of, so we, we've seen politicians use terrorism and fear-mongering for political and electoral purposes. Is this, you know, making immigration about fear and electoral purposes? Is this just the next logical step? That's a good question. It, it sort of looks that way. And it's, you know, it's tied, it's, it is tied into this, you know, you mentioned trade a little earlier and, and it is, you're able to turn someone else into the devil whether it's the immigrant or the uh, other country's trading policy or whatever, you're able to, um, you know, turn out your base and, and excite them against this this other this other, and um, it's 
this isn't a new strategy in American no, politics. No, this, sure. this is classic sort of wedge issue, you know, sort of stuff. But I think the interesting thing to me, longer run, is that, um, you know, I think that the evidence seems to be that this is working for Trump. Trump identified this as a, a big key to the midterms. Um, and I think he was half right. It looks like in Senate races, this has helped uh, firm up Republicans on the Senate side because since the voting is across the whole state, you get a lot more of the rural red districts in there. But in fact, I think it's going the other way in House districts, which on average, just because of math and demographics, tend to be somewhat more liberal. And but in the longer long run, um, you know, the, the the nation majority already believes you need to create a path for illegal immigrants to become citizens. Um, and that majority, I think, is only going to build over time as older, more conservative, less immigration-friendly people die off and are replaced by a generation of Americans who are more likely to be the children of immigrants and less likely to be white and so on and so forth. So I, this feels like um, the, the Trump team's last stand on this, if you so will. I don't, I don't want to get you, let, let you get away with a, a statement that um, was maybe a little broad. I have no desire to ever let someone who came into this country against our laws become a citizen. I have no problem with finding a path to having them live in this country legally. Those are two very different things. And I think it's the, you know, the fruit of the, or the, the forbidden fruit coming in, breaking our law to get here and then staying here and then being rewarded for it is something that I don't want to have any part of. No, I, again, yeah. people disagree, yeah. disagree on that. Absolutely. That's yeah. the debate we need to have. And but, a debate about incentives for why people come in illegally is partly because it's so difficult to come in legally. So until, as you say, until we fix the legal immigration system, this problem will persist. All right. Uh, finally, uh, a news item that might have been actual news had it happened you know, some other time in American history. <laughs> um, Turkey fired on US-backed Kurdish uh, fighters in uh, Syria on Sunday. A couple of questions. Does this have any impact on US plans to stick around? in Syria? Uh, and how does this affect U.S.-Turkey relations, which, you know, seem to be maybe trending a little bit up with the Turkish approach to the Khashoggi affair, but eh, maybe not? I don't understand our Syria policy. I didn't understand it uh, under the last president, so I don't, I, I can't comment on whether it will change it. Um, I'm watching Erdogan and I'm watching Turkey and I'm watching naked political opportunism and I'm watching the, the, I'm watching Trump sort of warm to yet another autocrat and the Khashoggi assassination was a terrible event. It's clear to me Turkey's doing all it can to run with that also. Um, not that that makes Khashoggi's assassination any less bad, but they're clearly, this is the Rahm Emanuel making, you know, turning a crisis into an opportunity for them. I mean, you say, I don't understand our serious strategy. No one understands our serious strategy. We don't have a serious strategy. If we actually had a serious strategy, maybe we could understand what was going on. But it's just, you know, it was the fight against ISIS and now maybe it's pushback against Iran. And now we're saying that apparently we're not going to leave until the Iranians leave Syria, which strikes me as a, a little perhaps overly optimistic, given that they've been there for 40 odd years. Um, I mean, there's really only one place in Syria right now where I understand what US troops are doing. And that's, there's a there's a small detachment of US troops near Al-Tanf. They're basically standing between the Assad regime and a refugee camp. And I kind of understand what's going on there. And until we have a political solution, they probably need to stay there. But other than that, it's just not clear what they're doing. I mean, we lost, I, you know, we lost an opportunity when, when we walked away from the red line, we lost, lost an opportunity to, to lay out a coherent 
approach and strategy that said, these are our out the outcomes we desire. This is what we're working to. The Trump people came in and sort of continued, just layered on top of what existed before them. And I, I just don't, I don't know why we're doing, what we're doing there or why we're there at this point. Yeah. This just seems like, um, you know, be staying in just enough to risk really bad things, dragging you into further messes without being enough to ever get anything you want done which is the worst of all worlds. And it's been true under Obama and Trump, right. I think, for the most part. Right. This is, I was listening to a podcast yesterday with uh, Stephen Walt and Ben Dominich, and Walt talked about the degree to which there is continuity in, in, in a Trump foreign policy. And, and I see it here on display, uh, you know, without, it's just right up front. All right, let's, uh, let's switch over to the main topic for today, and that is uh, the evolution of conservative foreign policy thinking. Um, so to start off here, you know, I, I think it might be good to start, set the table a little bit. Conservative foreign policy, th foreign policy thinking underwent, I think, um, a pretty big set of changes in the wake of 9-11. Um, how would you characterize the journey of conservative foreign policy thinkers from 9-11 up till around the emergence of Donald Trump? I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure I agree with the premise of the question that it changed with 9/11. I think if Ronald Reagan had been in office in, in September 11, 2001 and had been in office for 5 or 6 years, whatever the reaction would have been from him would have looked a lot like what George Bush's reaction was and um that sort of muscular action-oriented we can do something here and here's what we're going to do. Um, those are those are hallmarks of what I used to understand was conservative foreign policy. My problem these days is that um, I, I I don't know what co a, a coherent Republican foreign policy is. I know what it was. It 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 had a, a very you know American exceptionalism was smack dab in the middle of it. A strong active role in the world from a position of leadership. Not, not uh, catalytic. Not, uh, not leading from behind. None of these uh, sort of euphemisms, but leadership. Um, uh, it was a, a, a foreign policy that valued our old friends and our old friendships, even when uh, Rumsfeld went off the reservation and started talking about old Europe. That was, I thought, that was impolitic when it happened. Um, I don't see and, – and obviously free trade. Free trade was a gigantic part of uh, conservative foreign policy over the last 50 years. Um, I, I don't – you know, I know – I hear the administration talking about a strong military but to do what? It's not like they wish to be involved in the world. They are – they you hear, you hear overtones of a foreign policy of restraint, believe it or not, from Trump. Although he is the most unrestrained man I, I believe I've ever known uh, known of, um, there is you know if I were a congressman or a senator, I would be making the the administration tell me, okay, you're trying you want to spend seven hundred and thirty three or seven hundred sixteen or seven hundred billion dollars, whatever it is this week, on the military to do what? You you clearly don't want. Um, you clearly think all of our allies are, are free riding. You clearly think we shouldn't be here, 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 and here. What are you going to do with this military? And if you're not going, and if it is going to become a homeland defense force, then we can cut it and cut it big time. 
See, I got to disagree with you on that. I really do see change in conservative foreign policy since, I'm going to say since the end of the Cold War, not since 9-11. Um, and I see that change as a sort of a continuous change that eventually leads us towards Trump. Um, so to put it another way, right, you've, you've said, I think, publicly in the past that the Republican Party sort of left you on foreign policy in recent years. Well, I'm a realist. The Republican Party left me longer ago. Um, if I look at the foreign policy of George H.W. Bush, you know, I see a foreign policy that was really informed by a very nuanced, realist, pragmatic approach to the world. Yes, it had many of the things that you say, but it was fundamentally informed by what we could and couldn't achieve in the world. And then I see us shifting sort of as we move into um, the George W. Bush years towards a foreign policy that's very much focused on changing the world. Right. It, 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 the forward strategy for freedom set tagline says a lot of that, doesn't it? Yeah. A, a strategy that was designed to change the world into the image that we thought it should be. Um, you know, And George W. Bush did that in conjunction with allies and worked with other countries. And to some extent, I just see Trump as continuing that trend, right? He's he's dumping the allies part, but he's still trying to force the world to be what he wants it to be. And, and I just see this as a shift completely away from a sort of realist, pragmatic foreign policy on the conservative side. Do you think that Ronald Reagan was considered a realist? during his time? I think he was considered a starry-eyed idealist to, to most realists. And uh, so, I, you know, I, this, this realist versus, uh, ide uh, versus idealist sort of debate, no one is unalloyed. Uh, scratch it. Ask any realist. I mean, let's face it. There is, a, there is a bad case to be made, but a case to be made that Saudi Arabia and killing Khashoggi was in their interest and uh, it is just realist power politics in action. I think that's a terrible case, but it, you can make that. You can say that. What, we, what, what happens is you have to – you alloy that sort of straight out unalloyed, unalloyed realist uh, look with some idealism and some virtue and some morality in foreign policy. So, you know, when you say you're a realist, I have to believe there's morality and ethics in there also. And when people look at me, you know, like uh, and people look at me as an idealist in foreign policy, there's plenty of realism in there also. Like when I think, why are we in Syria? Uh, there is a, there's a huge realist string going on there. I mean, so E.H. Carr or Morgenthau or any one of those guys would agree with you that there is some morality component to realism. And I, I think you're right. I think Ronald Reagan, maybe not have been called a realist at the time, but many of the attitudes that he took and many of the policies that he pursued were at some points during his presidential term. Well, I think also that there's a big distinction to be made. And I think you're absolutely right about Reagan. A lot of people thought um, he was far too unrestrained. Uh, to the from the realist perspective, and I think, but what constrained him, and I think there's an important distinction here, is you know what he might have felt in his heart and what he actually did as president were two different things because he was constrained by the Cold War, by superpower competition, by Congress, uh, and some other things. I mean, the rollback strategy never got fully going the way he wanted to, or else Reagan would have been the author of the forward strategy for, I mean, he wanted to do that. That's not a very realist thing to do, but that's what he saw as the right. strategy for the Cold War. When I think about the Clinton administration and then the George W. Bush administration, and I think of NATO enlargement, and then I think of um, uh, Bush trying to create democracy in the Middle East, I don't see either one of those things as inconsistent with what Reagan would have thought or done had he been in office at the time. So I, I see more continuity across the, the decades than, than I see change. 
So maybe the difference in, in your telling, maybe the difference is just the Cold War, right? Reagan was constrained. He couldn't he couldn't achieve those things, but you're saying he would have done them, could he? Just conditions. Conditions, conditions is the yeah. big thing. Right. Well, that fits the conservative brand. It's very on brand. We never changed. Just the world changed around us. Well, 9 11, everything changed. So then you saw us behaving differently. You'd ask my daughters, they would tell you that's exactly who I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, okay. So, so we've established that conservative foreign policy thinking uh, in, in the heart of hearts hasn't changed. Um, is, it th is it changing during the Trump era now? And let me, let me sort of parse that a little bit because uh, it's clear from talking to people inside the Beltway that there are, are two kinds of conservatives, perhaps, at least at this point the conservatives who have never changed. And perhaps some people who at one point were those kind of conservatives, but now seem to maybe be a slightly different kind of more Trump flavored conservative. Is there a, is there a divergence here? Are there, is what's happening to conservative foreign policy thinking now under Trump? Well, I think you're ignoring a th the third cr crowd who is even more important to this dynamic. And that is people who aren't the least bit conservative and never have been, who now consider themselves conservative uh, as an opportunistic uh, labeling exercise or branding exercise, or at least it's a conservatism I don't recognize, and Russell Kirk wouldn't recognize, and William F. Buckley, you know, they just wouldn't recognize these people as conservatives. Um, uh, I think it's great that we're here today on on Halloween, uh, taping this uh, th this podcast because there are a lot of people in this town um, masquerading as conservatives, number one, or who used to be principled conservatives who are now just sort of, you know, thrown sniffing Trumpians and uh, who, who whatever, whatever comes out of his mouth, whatever they find some excuse for. And uh, that, that's not conservatism, um, but they are, they're branding themselves that way. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the we few, we happy few out in the desert, um, I still consider myself conservative. I think th th there are a lot of people who are um, taking that term who, who don't deserve it these days. So what do you see as the biggest differences between those groups? You've, you've alluded to the idea that Trump is sort of restraint flavored and I, I would dispute that with you, but we'll put that aside for a second. What, what is the big difference between the people that you say are actually conservative foreign policy thinkers and the sort of Trump focus group? All right. So the, the first is if, if you look back over uh, Donald Trump's adult life such as it has been, there are two things that he has said for 40 years or 35 years. Number one, he's been anti-free trade. Number two, he believes that we are larded with free-riding allies who don't pay enough for their own defense. Um, both of those uh, points, th those are the sort of bedrock parts of what I take to be his foreign policy and I believe those are in direct conflict with traditional post-World War II conservative thinking. Break. There are, th there are things that Donald Trump has done as president that ha policy decisions he has made that have made me happy that as a conservative I believe were right or that I believe were right simply as a policy preference ideology aside. Um, but I don't think these decisions come from uh, a place of ideology or a place of reflection. They're glandular. They are, um, they are uh, of the moment uh, and, and they are, you know, they, they seem to represent who was in his ear last. What are the top sort of issues that conservatives are going to be working uh, 
on foreign policy moving forward, whether whether you want to consider just the next couple of years while Trump is still in office or in a post-Trump sort of era, what, what moving forward is going to be driving the ship? Um, number one, in my view, is uh, <laughs> at saying this at Cato, I might get hit by a lightning bolt, but is uh, primacy. How do we go about protecting our position of primacy in the world as the leading diplomatic, economic, military power? How do we do that? Um, I don't see enough people talking about that in those terms. And I think that's a problem because we, we have benefited handsomely from those roles. The American people's prosperity have, has been associated with you know, the dollar as the reserve currency, which is a, a function of uh, confidence in our government and our way of uh, doing business, all sorts of things that have come from our leadership and our position in the world that is, you know, it's 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 mutually reinforced by our economy and our military and how they how they and and our di diplomatic uh, and our place in the world. So primacy is going is the number one. I'd say number two is is free trade is is making the case. And this is this is the problem with people like me and it's a problem with people who think like me is that we um, we just thought that all of this stuff was settled and we thought that there were some. Some people at Cato who disagreed with us and some people at the Center for American Progress that disagreed with us. But by and large, we had won the argument uh, and, and this was a – and we paid no attention to what was going on in the country and the degree to which people began to believe that globalization was what was causing that factory to um, – uh, or trade deals was causing that factory to move. Um, we just we we abandoned the playing field. The sort of primacist uh, foreign policy people, especially on the right, uh, we thought it was a done deal. And Trump came along and showed us we were wrong. And this is I, I keep telling whoever will listen to me in Washington that conservative think tanks need to get out and need to hit. The you know the, the the rubber chicken circuit around the country and do TV spots from their you know million dollar uh, TV studios and and do and hit the five o'clock news in, in Des Moines Iowa or wherever else it is and and explain these things. Uh, I still haven't seen any evidence of that. I mean, no one at Cato is going to disagree with you on free trade. I will say that. Um, but you know, I do want to go back to this question of sort of the, the free riding allies, and so that's been one of the things that Donald Trump he's been harping on it for years. It started with the Japanese, and now he's moved on to the Europeans. Um, but you got to admit that he he does have somewhat of a point. He's basically talking about a situation, particularly in the case of Europe, where we have you know the European members of NATO are now wealthier and have a higher population than the US, but the US is still bearing, I think it's over 70% of the operational costs of NATO at this point. So there is an argument to be made here that that relationship has become really unbalanced. And so while I can see that you make the point that conservatism would say, well, maintain, maintain our old friendships, maintain our allies, this is important. It also seems to me that that's beginning to come into conflict with another norm that we could definitely call conservative, which is fiscal conservatism. Are the U.S. population still willing to pay this much in a non-Cold War situation to maintain alliances that have become so fundamentally unbalanced over time? We have we spend less as a function of GDP on defense historically today than we've done in a long time. 
I mean, what was it, 3.8 or 3.6% sometime at, at this point? This suggestion that somehow we're, and you're not making it, but others do, that we're bankrupting ourselves or that we're spending too much of our own treasure on protecting rich European allies is just wrong because you know we have an $18 trillion economy and we're spending $700 billion of it on defense, broadly understood. So the math doesn't work for me. Number Number two, I don't want it to be a balanced relationship. I want it to be unbalanced. I want us to be the unquestioned leaders. I, and if it costs us more money in order to do that, I'm okay with that because we ultimately then get to call the shots. You know, it, it, it's no – we we have the – our, our uh, general is, in, is the NATO commander in Europe. Um, we have an unequal – say in 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 what goes on within NATO and that is a that's a function of of our influence of our money of our military um we we have been able to get allies to come along with us even on our some of our less more adventurous less wise uh foreign policy overtures um do i think that i would do i want europe to spend more hell yeah um do i want a president of the United States acting like a buffoon in public and publicly um, uh, embarrassing allies. I like diplomacy. I like people in quiet rooms speaking on very direct terms to each other without the media present. The most important thing you start you're starting to see certain European countries spend more money, and and it's not a function of Trump. It's a function of how close you are to Russia, <laughs> and and how scared you are. How your your own uh, your own idea of your of your security needs. Europe stopped spending on their security needs because they didn't see a threat, and they were right. But if they don't see a threat. Why do we see a but threat? They, because we see the threat now. We're looking ahead. I, I certainly see the threat. I see the threat when when I when I see what Russia would be capable of doing in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And how long it would take them to just roll in and uh, take those places. Now, you may, you're looking at me like I have 10 heads, but uh, I mean, we're watching. Are, are we not watching what they did in Ukraine? I mean, they, they are, they, are we not watching what they did in Georgia in 2008? This is a country that is, peck, is pushing the limits. And, uh, you know, I, I think they are, they are, uh, I can't. I don't think you can rule out further Russian ad adventurism. I think we could have a long debate over this, perhaps sure. later once we've all had a drink. Um, yeah. But we are getting a little off topic. Yeah. So, so let me let me let me circle back here. I mean, I was going to ask you know what are the toughest questions to get consensus on within conservative foreign policy circles? But let me let me just pick up on your last answer. The the, the big issues going forward. You said primacy, and then free trade, and then. Um, you know, we might then toss the great power competition up, yeah, right? With Russia, China would be the next on your list. I'm I'm guessing roughly, but I'm going to say that this is exactly where I see the difficulties for the conservative side of things. Uh, this can be a challenge because I think th these are the issues where Trump is going one way, and 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 sort of standard conservative foreign policy thinking is another way. I think Trump wants to be strong but not to lead. Um, Trump doesn't like free trade. Um, Trump ha is pals with dictators and not 
uh, standard issue conservative worried about them. I mean, yes, the national security strategy said we're back to great power competition, but I don't see Trump seeing that. And I think the concern that I would have if I were a conservative foreign policy thinker is how many conservatives or are we going to lose to the Trump brand of foreign policy over time? Well, we've already lost quite a few. I mean, I look at my Twitter feed and I see people who I at one time respected who are um, simple mouthpieces for whatever it is he's doing uh, domestically or or internationally. I don't think the numbers are on my side. I don't think the future belongs to me and my, uh, and, and my hardy band. I think we are going to be in the wilderness for um, some period of time. And uh, I think what we need to do is to continue – is to make our arguments, to make our arguments to a broader spectrum of people in the United States of America and to be ready when the – when we begin to reap the, the whirlwind of this administration and whether it is some sort of foreign policy calamity or it is a ridiculous lurch to the left, one of those two things is really possible if not both. Uh, in the near term, and I think people like me and my friends and you know and 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 our little cabal, we need to be ready to help if if uh, if we get to that point. But I mean, it really does sound like of the the three big issues that we that we named there: the the primacy, the trade, and the great power competition. Only on the third of those is there really any agreement at all between yourselves and the sort of what we I guess call them the Trumpites, right? Um, and he's not been Trump himself has has perhaps not been as supportive in in his speeches about that stuff. But I mean, if you look at the speech that Mike Pence gave a couple of weeks ago, you look at the administration's actual policy towards China. It does seem like that's an area where there's some agreement. No question. I thought the vice president's speech. Um, was a good one. I thought it had a lot of lot to argue, a lot to to uh, commend to it. Um, but foreign policy is the province of the president. It really is, and and in our system, he has an outsized voice. And while the things coming out of the vice president's mouth were nice to hear, does anybody really believe that this administration would would give a rip about religious rights in China? If we didn't have a $380 billion trade deficit with them? The answer is no. So, I mean, there, uh, there is, there, you know, I, I think there is, there, there is room for commonality between my people and the Trump people on the great power competition. I think what the nature of that competition with China is and how we, and how we see that, there's, that's where the difference is. Yeah, so they, they were taking the same approach to China, but probably for the wrong reason. I think so. Yeah, that's really interesting because that gets back to a point that's come up in a couple of our podcasts, which is we seem to be heading towards this this competition with China, but no one really knows why we're fighting it or uh, what the actual end goal is. So there seem to be two views inside even just the the right side of the political spectrum. Yeah, I'm looking forward to your next podcast with the well, guy on the left to hear how and, they and, talk about and it. And so yeah. let's end with a question that, that helps us pivot that yeah. way. Um, we, we've talked now at some length about the difference between conservative foreign policy thinking and conservative foreign policy thinking. What are the big differences in your mind between conservatives and liberals today on foreign policy? You know, God forbid we have that lurch to the left uh, and and someone from the Democratic Party takes over the White House. What's What are you thinking about that foreign policy? My problem generally with um, left of center foreign policy as it has been practiced in the last 20 or 30 years uh, is that it 
pretends to primacy, but it, it does it on the cheap. It doesn't back it up with spending on the military, with, with the, um, with the em employment of active muscular diplomacy in a way that uh, puts people on notice. There is a great deal, and this is, gets back to what I said to sort of open the program, is that at the very top of the left and right and the foreign policy blob, as people call it, there's a lot. People see things similarly and there, is, there, there are questions of degree. I, I don't know how outmoded that view is. I don't know whether a Kamala Harris administration will or, or a Cory Booker administration will reflect that sort of mature approach to international relations that we've seen from both parties over, you know, over decades. I just don't know. I don't know what liberal foreign policy is. Obviously, it's a lot of human rights discussion, more idealism on, with respect to human rights, which is something I, I, that, that doesn't generally bother me unless it gets in the way of a real interest of the country, which it very rarely does. Um, I, my argument right now, I don't have the time or the energy to fight the left. Um, my, my, my fight is with my own side at this point and trying to trying to help bring some some sanity back into the right. You know, I, I think that's really interesting because I think we've seen some some really interesting sort of cross-party uh, work in Congress recently, particularly I'm thinking the stuff on Yemen. We've seen Chris Murphy, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side working with Mike Lee and Rand Paul on the Republican side. Um, now, they're perhaps not any of them advocates of primacy in the way that you uh, propose it, but they are working together across the aisle. Um, but then there's there's perhaps, you alluded to this earlier, that slightly more nefarious um, cross-party stuff where we've got Bernie Sanders, who is anti-free trade, and Trump, who's anti-free trade. And so you can see anti-trade, anti anti-immigrant sentiments causing cross-party cooperation. Absolutely. Um, there's... 10, 12 years ago, I was, and as I was getting out of the Navy, I, I was involved in a project. And one of the things we did was that we um, we did a, a survey of assistant secretary and above kinds of folks at state, commerce, um, treasury, and defense. Uh, and it was all about foreign policy attitudes and defense attitudes. And one of the things we found was there, there was a remarkable convergence. Um, I say remarkable because I didn't realize it then. Um, some would say, well, of course, it's not remarkable. That's why we have all these problems that we have. But I tend to believe it's because the more you look at these things, you know, whether it's Obama, uh, Trump, the Trumpians, whatever, you, when you come into the office and you realize you want – Trump wants to be restrained, I think. He wants to not, you know, get dragged into this, this and this and this. Americans still want to be number one. We haven't we haven't had an election where we say, all right, we're we're happy with number two, uh, and we're happy to just start declining, and we're happy to you know we have groups of people who say we don't want to be involved in this and we don't want to be involved in that, but woe be unto the president who loses something, or woe be unto the president who 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 presides over a, a, a Americans dying uh, without doing something about it. Um, you get into the office, and I find like, you know like Reagan was by the Cold War, the. American leadership requires a certain amount of activity and I, it, I, I don't think um, walking away from that uh, responsibility is a long-term uh, winner of a strategy for either party. Well, that's a great point on a great discussion. Brian, thanks for joining us. And thanks as always to our producer, Jeff Geld, and everyone at home for listening. You can always find us on Twitter at, the, uh, at CatoFP to continue the conversation. 